electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Jim Cramer and David Faber. Futures coming off their overnight lows as it's really a banner day for Q3 earnings. Tesla, Coke, AT&T, Airlines, Dow, we'll get to all of that. The final presidential debate tonight, Pelosi on stimulus and claims a little bit better than expected. Uh, our roadmap begins with the earnings Pelusa, the CEOs of Dow, Southwest, Whirlpool will all join us this hour. Plus, Quibi is calling it quits just six months after its debut. Why this streaming service struggled to find customers. And stimulus and election uncertainty. Stocks poised for, let's call it a muted open so far. Of course, it's about 29 minutes away, Carl. All right, Jim, we're going to start with Tesla. I know you've been uh, talking about it all night long, and the debate continues once again. Five quarters of profitability, but again, the bears keep bringing up these, uh, these regulatory credit sales. Well, I, I thought that this was uh, a really fantastic quarter. A couple reasons. One is, is that if you look at the financials of Tesla, they are as clean as can be. Uh, and I could argue that this company is doing incredibly well. The conference call was a conference call that reminds me of uh, people who just want to tell the truth straight as can be. Uh, Elon Musk, I'm not saying he's restrained or he's in a straitjacket, but uh, what a terrific conference call. It's very hard to think uh, negatively about this company. I know that there are people who talk, uh, obviously, valuation, but there are a couple upgrades today. Uh, and I think they have they can't fight it. It's the, the, the reason why they can't fight it is because when everything works, it's very difficult to argue what the price should be, because right now this company is doing incredibly well. Uh, and if they make as many cars as they say, uh, what you're going to say is, you know what? I know that it sells at a gigantic price to earnings, well, price to multiple, whatever. But, David, when I read through the Tesla notes, what I what I read are analysts who are just saying, you know what? I can't fight it anymore. I have to like it. Yeah, I did notice one of those fashionably late. Yeah, this yeah. good title. Yeah, Baird upgrading to outperform. I mean, uh, fashionably, look at the move in that stock. I, at this point, I'm not sure you want to weigh in and say you're, you're upgrading now. That's, that's pretty embarrassing. But, Jim, when you get to the metrics that you're looking at to try to determine what a price should be, granted, if uh, this company is operating extraordinarily well, I still wonder... What is an appropriate multiple? I mean, they still largely tell. are. I mean, again, you argue they're a technology company. Well, that's not what a I, car I, company. I find, that's I'm what you have to this, argue. You, you have to. I mean, this morning there are two uh, price target bumps for Ford. Now, I happen to think Ford's doing extremely well because they decided to not lose as much money as they used to. We're talking about uh, J, uh, J.P. Morgan going from seven to nine, Barclays eight to nine. But you know what, David? These are companies that are bound by the conventional four walls of the spreadsheet. People are not going to give Ford any of the credit because they don't like this whole model. I had Mr. Fister on last night. And basically what those guys do is make a car, 
okay, and it sells because it's great looking. And that's what I feel about Elon Musk. He makes cars, but he's fully integrated. Uh, the cars, you can do 510. Whatever he sells, whatever he makes, he's going to sell. Uh, there's no dealer network. And now he's starting to say the same thing in China. So what you see is a frictionless model. So you have the analysts who don't know what to do. They really don't because they've been wrong. David, they've been so wrong that it's better just to say, you know what? I, I never really understood the valuation, but I, I do think the company's a pretty good company. And that's where these people are coming down. It's amazing. I can't think of another place of time I've ever seen it. No, really? No. I mean, where a company is just, where a CEO is masterful, where a company has done amazing things, and uh, the financials no longer seem. Remember all the short sellers would call you and say, the financials are phony. You take a look at them. Maybe this or that. Yes. You know, Carl, I know the credits matter, but what really matters, I think, with Tesla's is that uh, it's flawless. Flawless execution. Even in a time of COVID, they ended up doing everything right. Um, and, Carl, I, I just read it and I think if this were a tech company, it deserves to sell exactly where it's selling. Hmm. When you say the credits matter, I mean, they're selling them at 100 percent margin while they're selling cars at a loss and cutting prices. So when do when do the credits stop mattering? I, I, I struggle. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, look, it's still cheaper than what we what did we, yesterday. Uh, Phil, who is, I don't know, does Phil ever sleep? I mean, he had a piece yesterday about the Hummer, the EV Hummer for 110000 Elon Musk's goal is to make the cars cheaper and cheaper every year and the battery go down. That was the point of the battery day. So I think they're lowering the prices. Very Henry Ford-like without the ideology. And so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, credits, no credits. He's going to make the car cheaper. Uh, I feel like it's people were trading in stocks before when there were commissions, and then they traded even more when they got rid of commissions. I think Tesla's going to be, if they could make a million cars, they would sell a million cars with or without that credit. That's how strongly uh, people feel about this car. Bitcoin is the only other asset I've ever seen that's like Tesla, where people just who, who own it, they just will not let you say a bad word about it. Uh, maybe Fisker is going to be like that. Remember, he worked at one point with, with uh, Elon. But another great designer. Uh, yeah, I went to the, I went to the uh, Lamborghini factory where they made five Lamborghini Ursus the day I was there. Full day. And Tesla, Lamborghini, Fisker. Those are the ones that people just say, flawless. Flawless. And Carl, when I hear flawless, I say, how do I value that as if it were just GM? I can't. I, yeah. it's, un, it's unfair to GM, well, but I can't. Yeah. Well, you guys are right about uh, the latecomers on the street. Uh, JMP and Baird both go to outperform today. And I think it was Baird. I think it was Baird who said it's not too late for us to join the party. Yeah, I think that's some boy. What a party, man. You can say that, but I'm not sure that comes in with a lampshade, David. Lampshade on head. It's been quite a party. It has been quite a party. Well, the JMP is very Um, notable because it it talked about Musk tips his hand on 2021 as if he hasn't missed the last 10 years. This guy's talking about the future, which is great. But, David, you used to make fun of people like this, but now you're on to bigger things. Is that what it is? Is that what it is? I don't know. <laughs> I'll rely on you. You're, you're going to be my biographer at some point. So I will. You tell I'm me. I'm going to write my, the, the yeah. Chronicles, the yeah. Faber Chronicles. Faber Chronicles. <laughs> it starts out by saying the world's lousy. Uh, people are terrible, yeah. and I don't like to shop. Um, Guys, we have so many earnings to get to this morning before we get to our parade of CEOs as well. I did want to hit AT&T, and that'll take us into some of this news about You're going to be positive. 
Well, you know, the, it's interesting. Uh, so many people want to focus on the performance of the Warner business. And, of course, the company continues to be hurt by the fact that theaters, mo movie theaters, are not open in key areas. Or if they are, few people are coming. Production has started up again. I did speak yep. to the CFO, John Stevens, on the phone uh, about an hour or so ago. Uh, and, you know, he said, listen, things are starting to get going in terms of production. They're not fully there, but they are starting to operate, starting to make shows, starting to make movies again. But, of course... When there's nobody to show up to watch them, it hurts your business. So that, that, that part of the business, Warner, we're watching 38 million uh, HBO Max subs. They say that's ahead of what they had forecast, uh, even for the end of this year or for, uh, 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 yeah, uh, they also had uh, an increase in activations, more than doubling in the quarter to 8.6 million from last quarter. And again, 38 million, that exceeds what was their end of year target of 36 million. But it's the wireless business that is shining uh, this morning for AT&T, and the reason the stock is looking up almost 5%, because it was quite strong. In fact, they added more postpaid uh, subs than did Verizon, for example. Uh, they had their best-ever postpaid phone churn, 0.69%, so very few people. I asked Stevens about whether this environment we're in right now is going to be one that is characterized as significant price-cutting, subsidies, uh, promotions, given the uh, introduction of the... Uh, of the iPhone 12 uh, with 5G capability. He says, no, proportionally, it's going to be kind of what it normally is in terms of a new phone, similar to what we heard yesterday from Hans Vesberg, who joins, of course, joined us, of course, the CEO of, of Verizon. He said, listen, we're going to have a very friendly upgrade cycle for our customers, for the people who we know are paying us and we know have been great customers. We're not going to be going into the market trying to get a customer we don't know or be nearly as aggressive at that. We're simply going to try to keep the ones we have, make, uh, make this what, it, again, is the first of what will be a couple of upgrade cycles, and it'd be a very important one, and do well by them, our existing base. And 0.69 churn, Jim, is what you want. The balance sheet, by the way, $148 billion in debt. Mm -hmm. That is down significantly. There are 2.66 times EBITDA right now. They sold 50 to $60 billion in debt just over the last 120 days. Average term around 20 years, uh, average yield about 3.5%. They are borrowing extraordinarily cheaply. Overall, I think they're all, they're all in. They're at about 17 years in terms of the term of their debt at 4.9% interest rate. That's pre-tax, of course. And they continue to sell assets. So, Jim, the dividend that you were questioning to some extent yesterday yep. seems to be quite safe there at roughly in the 50s, low 50s of free cash flow. I did not count on the churn. I didn't count on anything when wireless being that good. I mean, they did a great job. And I, well, I wonder whether, do you think the El Elliott people played any role? Or do you think this was just theirs? I don't know. I don't, I, 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 that's not clear to me yeah. that that would be the but case. But look, I mean, I, when I see a good quarter, I don't try to find a hole in it. This yeah. is a good quarter. And yeah. it made me feel better about the dividend. And if you didn't feel better about the dividend, then you're just you, you just hate the company. And I can't do that. Well, listen, you, the stock has been nothing short of just horrific. Horrific. Uh, and but the CFO it, and it's not as the earnings good. are going up. They're going down. They've no, been hit hard by cover. COVID. Right. And they sold all those assets, David. That's a great story. And they continued to, of course. No, no, nothing would be shared. Nothing was shared with me in terms of Directv when I asked those questions about where things stand. But we can tell you there continue to move forward with that and perhaps some other asset sales as well another three billion or so that they're closing actually in sales that they sort of did by the end of the last quarter well, congratulations up. to them earnings the pandemic and the economy we've got a big morning on tap we have the ceos of dow southwest whirlpool coca-cola oh yeah we're not even done there then lance fritz 
Union Pacific CEO. Also ahead, Quibi's Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman. They're going to join us to talk about why they are shutting down the streaming service six months after it started. Don't go anywhere. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Shei, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Senate Judiciary has voted to advance Judge Barrett's nomination to the full floor without the Democrats. Elon Mui has more on that this morning. Hi, Elon. Well, that's right, Carl. The Senate Judiciary Committee has voted in favor of Amy Coney Barrett to fill that vacant seat on the Supreme Court, sending her nomination now to the Senate floor for final confirmation. The vote tally was 12 to 0 as Democrats boycotted this meeting over complaints that Republicans are ramming through her nomination too close to the election. Instead, they filled their seats with the pictures of people who could stand to lose their health insurance if the Supreme Court does overturn the Affordable Care Act. However, Democrats know that there is little that they can do to stop this process. Guys, her final confirmation vote is expected to be taken up by the Senate on Monday. David. Elon, thank you. Elon Moy. Shares of Dow are rising this morning. This after third quarter earnings rebounded from the impact of the coronavirus on business. But there is still an uneven recovery for uh, the near term across markets. Joining us now is Dow's chairman and CEO, Jim Fitterling. Jim, always good to have you. And let's get to sort of the, uh, the global outlook, if we can, because you usually give us a pretty good one. You said uh, on that outlook, you're quoted or quoted as saying, you know, although the third quarter rebound was significant, recovery has been uneven across markets. You expect this will continue in the near term. Give us a little more sense as to why you're saying that. Yeah, good morning, David. Uh, we saw good demand in the third quarter. It improved uh, sequentially from second quarter. Uh, but we still see some markets that are not back to pre-COVID levels. If you look at areas like uh, packaging, food and specialty packaging, industrial uh, consumer packaging, if you look at things like health and hygiene markets, electronics, durable goods, automotive, all strong, all making a comeback, construction making a comeback. I would say packaging this year has been up every month, year over year, in volume. Uh, so that's a very strong number. And while appliances have come back, they've also come back to almost pre-COVID levels. Automotive is up, but it isn't back to pre-COVID levels. It may take a year or two for them to get back to pre-COVID construction levels. So it's looking good. Uh, it's looking good around the world. Brazil was particularly strong in the third quarter. That was probably unexpected for us to see them come out that strong. And I would say across almost all markets in China, uh, we're back to pre-COVID levels. All right. Still uh, some room to go in some markets here yeah. in the U.S. Now, obviously, concern about the resurgence of the virus, not just here in, in this country, where it never has sort of not surged, but really in Europe as well. Are you concerned about potential, not, not necessarily even lockdowns, but simply a diminution of economic activity as we see it uh, surge in some key markets? I think you have to be on the watch uh, for what's going to happen and you have to adjust, you know, so our, our view is, you know, wash your hands, wear a mask, watch your distance with people. And if we do those things and if everybody does those things, we should be able to keep the economies open and keep people going back to work and back to school. But if, if people start to deviate from that, you're going to see cases rise and you're going to see spikes. 
And that's when governments feel like they need to step in sometimes and, and shut things down. Um, we've been doing relatively well, but we can't keep our eye off the ball. We're going to have to be in this kind of operation for the next year or so. Jim, Jim Kramer, always good to see you. Nice to see you, Jim. Okay, so, Jim, you reduced debt uh, a dramatic amount, uh, $1.8 billion, uh, which I think is incredible. Remember one time people were worried about your dividend, and with this kind of debt reduction, uh, is that sustainable? Because uh, you are really uh, reliquifying this balance sheet. Well, the team did a fantastic job of price volume management and operating the assets to really capture the demand growth that we saw in the third quarter. We did a great job in second quarter of reducing rates to match demand, and we managed cash and liquidity in the second quarter, and we did a super job of ramping back up in the third quarter and really capturing it on the top line and the bottom line. This is a cash-generating machine. We generated $1.5 billion in free cash flow from operations, which is flat with the year-ago period, even though our earnings are down versus the year-ago period. And we did it because we controlled our capex, we controlled our spending, and we did all the things that you need to do to manage cash and liquidity. We've paid down $1.8 billion in debt year-to-date. That was in line with our target that we wanted to do. Uh, we've also been able to manage our capex and keep the plants running reliably. And I think if we can continue in this space, obviously the dividend is safe at $518 million a quarter. But if we can continue this space, we can start to open up CapEx a little bit with discipline and, and with a gradual ramp as we see the demand continue to improve. All right, well, let's just talk ESG for a second. I'm speaking to James Quincy, and James is a CEO of Coca-Cola. He sees tremendous progress in recycling when it comes to bottles, uh, soda bottles. He still said single-use, uh, he used the example shampoo bottles, are still in uh, less developed countries uh, not being recycled. Uh, what can you do science-wise to make it so that those kinds of plastics can just be boiled down somehow? Because I know you care passionately about the environment. I know that this is an important, uh, important issue for you. Is there science coming out of Dow that can advance the ball when it comes to recycling? There, there's science in uh, several ways, Jim, that can move us forward. Uh, one is advanced recycling, which is really taking the plastics back to a feedstock level that can go back into a plastics plant. It's more expensive than mechanical recycling. Mechanical recycling today cleans it, chops it up, and, and melts it back into plastic. And that can be done very cost-effectively for a lot of materials. But when you get into some uh, single-use materials or some materials that might be more contaminated, it's probably better to go through an advanced recycling process and take it back. The other way is to look at um, re renewable materials that can be used as feedstock. So how can you take something like uh, a wood byproduct, um, like a tall oil, convert that into a feedstock that can go into a plastics facility? And that makes the original product uh, more renewable and then mm -hmm. also the recycled product more renewable. We're doing projects right now uh, ourselves together with people like Closed Loop Partners, the Recycling Partnership, uh, Circulate Capital, as well as the Alliance Sin Plastic Waste. In fact, we've got about 11 uh, projects in Asia operating right now trying to demonstrate different avenues on a scalable basis. I'm talking about 100,000 tons kind of basis 
to be able to scale those and then replicate those. Yeah, but Jim, you say by what within 15 years you want to close the loop to have 100% of your products sold into packaging applications that could be reusable or recyclable. What has to happen over these next roughly 15 years to allow that to happen? Well, about 80% of what we make today can be recycled today, and about 20%, which goes into things like flexible food packaging and some of those single-use applications, needs some work. It needs work on uh, polymer morphology. So today, to make a flexible food package, you might need four or five or nine layers of different materials. That makes that product hard to recycle. If I can come up with a catalyst that can be able to make one polymer that can have all of those properties that makes that pouch completely recyclable. Like we've done with Kellogg's and the bare naked granola, that pouch is one homopolymer that can be completely recycled. So that takes a little bit of time, but I think science will help us to get there. The other thing then that has to happen is you've got to get the infrastructure right. right. It's more expensive today to recycle, and James knows this, because you've got to bring product back in. So that cost of distributing, taking waste and bringing it back into a facility and recycling it is most of the cost. It isn't the physical cost of transforming it. It's the transportation cost of getting it back in. Yeah. And that's where we're going to have to have policies and practices to help us close that loop. All right. Well, it's a subject we'll always be entertaining and discussing with you uh, in the interviews you do with us, Jim. Always appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Nice Jim. to see both of you. Stay healthy. And you, Jim Fitterling from Dow. Carl? Later on in the hour, David, uh, the CEO of Southwest Airlines, Gary Kelly, on this smaller-than-expected loss, improving cash burn, and these talks with Boeing on the order book. That's coming up. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Very busy morning for Senate Judiciary, first advancing the nomination of Judge Barrett to the Senate floor. And now, Jim and David, uh, authorizing subpoenas for Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and Twitter's Jack Dorsey, something that Lindsey Graham uh, said that he would work on last week. Uh, now official. We'll see how that plays out in the days to come, guys. Yeah, Carl, I mean, look, these guys just love to subpoena uh, Zuckerberg and Dorsey. I mean, Nothing will come of it, okay? I'm just going to say right now, nothing will come of it. Uh, and you don't ever want to be called in front of the Senate, but uh, David, sorry. They can do all the subpoenaing they want. Nothing. Nothing. What are we listening to? Nothing what? But, well, about the subpoenas, Zuckerberg and... Oh, got it. There's the opening bell at the NYSE. 
Biotech company Biomex celebrating its listing anniversary at the Nasdaq. McAfee celebrating its IPO today. We're going to speak with the CEO of that, that cybersecurity firm. I thought firm. that was good. I yeah. thought that could be very, very high. Once owned by uh, Intel, remember? Yeah. Yeah, it didn't. You know, people said it, did, it was an early uh, kind of bomb. I thought that would be a hot thing, security. Well, yeah, follow that one. McAfee. Yeah. Still going with the name. I think maybe they're still they going with McAfee. They should go yeah. something else. I think they'd want to right? change that name. The already. Vault. Something good. Yeah, that's good. Although, vault Charger. Yeah. I don't know. Secret Keeper. Oh, I like that. David, you want to go? You missed your calling. Seek keep. Hey, Carl, you know what's interesting? CSX is better than Union Pacific. I, I, the, I never thought I'd see this day because CSX moves so much coal. But uh, they are. Yeah. That was an amazing school, by the way. They, at one point, I mean, it was so good. At one point on CSX, they were asked about ESG. And they said, are people uh, liking your stock because you use far less fuel than trucks? And Jim Foote, who is just a great guy. He says, actually, they like us now because, you see, we're competitive. We weren't competitive. Now we're good. We were bad. David, how did it happen (laughs) that you had a whole industry that really sucked? Um, Certainly, Jim, the additional $5 billion in buybacks doesn't hurt. No. I mean, CSX had just a – it was like the old days. It was such a good quarter. And then Union Pacific, which I like so much. Holy cow. People um, say Jim Venna leaving, Lance Fritz, the number didn't, didn't go up to expectations. Um, it was just, well, obviously the market's not, I'm not going to say the market's wrong on Union Pacific, but I was expecting a much better number Union Pacific because they don't have a lot of coal. I mean, CSX has all this coal. I know the president is really pro-coal. David, coal did not make a, re- a resurgence under this man's first term. Uh, no, coal, the market is speaking on coal. We know that. Uh, it's unfortunate for those who are in that industry, and many of them need to potentially be retrained in some fashion. But right. coal, you've made this point. I mean, we've never had f- less electricity. Well, it's been years, certainly since the advent of coal, since it's represented such a small percentage right. of our electricity grid here in terms of what is fuel. All those 40-year plants, plants last 40 years. Jimmy Carter said we were the Saudi Arabia coal. So we put up a lot of plants. We did, but they were clo- they're closing them. I mean, the New York Times did a New York Times did a, a very interesting piece a couple of weeks ago, a very big piece on all the closures, particularly focused on I think it was Arizona. I forget some v- enormous plants that have closed despite you, despite the attempts of the administration and everybody else to keep them going. They just it's more expensive. I know. I mean, who and obviously thought- not as not not good for the environment but, versus natural gas, which all those people can talk about anti-fracking all they want. Or wind. But fact Don't is, we get wind. natural gas, which is a cheaper and more efficient and cleaner way to so fuel are our Are you saying that the president's the environmental president that he actually should run on being the environmental president? He has been horrible for the environment. Oh, OK. Uh, Carl, back to you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> We'll talk to you later. Uh, David, I know you're going to we're going to talk Quibi. Yeah, we're going to talk Quibi later on uh, this morning. Uh, so many questions today about how, what role the pandemic played uh, was a one point eight billion enough on a day where, you know, AT&T HBO Max goes to almost twenty nine million subs. Uh, yeah. Uh, HBO Max, thirty eight million. Yeah. Um, where they are right now. And um you know, it's interesting. You're going to have an opportunity to talk to them, Carl, uh, to Jeffrey Katzberg and Meg Whitman, who, Meg Whitman, who are coming on and facing it and just saying, listen, we'd rather give money back right now. It didn't work. Uh, and 
many people had their questions about the service to begin with, whether there really was a desire or need for the short form sort of high end content. Um, and yet, you, when you look at Katzenberg and Whitman, you're like, well, if two people are going to potentially figure this out, it would be those two. Uh, we did speak to Meg Whitman uh, when the service began and was only six months ago. And despite the pandemic, she was sounding a very positive note. Well, uh, David. I have to say it's one of the most successful launches of a completely new brand and a completely new app. And interestingly, we did see that people are watching Quibi seven in the morning till seven at night during their in-between moments. We thought the in-between moments before COVID-19, we thought the in-between moments would, of course, be out and about, commuting, etc. We don't actually think it hurt us. We're delighted by the launch. I guess uh, most we can say is that directionally going into November, uh, October trends uh, look directionally positive. Is that fair to say? I think it's very fair to say. And, you know, I've heard several comments that the worst is behind us. And I think there's, uh, there's substantial evidence that that's true. Uh, we had kind of a rough uh, July, August because of the uh, spike in COVID cases that impacted demand. But really since then, I think we've done a, a really good job of matching the supply of seats to the demand. Demand's continued to improve. We had a good September. We had a better October. It's all relative, of course, uh, during the pandemic, but um, every reason to believe that uh, November will be better uh, yet again uh, than October. So um, the outlook for the fourth quarter is improved. Better revenues, lower cost, uh, and obviously, I'm very hopeful that these trends continue into next year. I noticed you're going to start putting folks back into middle seats beginning December 1. I, I can only assume that that means you feel the public is coming around to the idea that transmission on a plane is extremely rare. Yeah, we are going to do that. And it's based on uh, a lot of thought and a lot of research uh, and, you know, dependent upon a lot of expertise uh, in the science, scientific community. Um, but, you know, the other thing as a reference point uh, to your question about consumer perception, we're one of four airlines in the world, in the world, uh, that isn't booking airplanes full. So I think that's ample evidence that people uh, are more than willing to fly, but the facts support this. The facts are that it is a very safe environment, uh, and with all so that will be more stable because right now we're having to make adjustments when demand exceeds the artificial caps that we're putting on uh, the uh, airplanes. So uh, all the way around, I think it'll be better for our customers. And uh, the good news is that people are wanting to travel and they're returning and they can do that in a very safe way. Gary, Jim, uh, I, I was hoping you'd mention mass. I mean, one of the reasons why I did. Okay, no, but I'm I saying, you know, emphasizing that it's the safest thing in part because you guys were really the first. You said you had to wear them, and congratulations, because there's been 19 instances of COVID on airplanes since this pandemic. 19. There are whole buildings that have that on a single floor. You're the safest place to be, and I just think you guys should be a little more aggressive about that. 
Uh, and, you, you know what? Uh, that's uh, sound advice, and, and we'll take it to heart. And I'll bet you those 19 cases were before that masks were required on airplanes. Exactly. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so you're right. No, it's very important, and we will definitely continue to uh, make that a center point, a centerpiece uh, of our safety message. Good, because my kids are flying around, and I don't want them to think that it's, you know, I tell them it's the safest place on earth. Now, the one thing Philbo says this morning, and I know you love him. He said, American Airlines CEO, we need business travelers to return in order to bounce back. Uh, my stepson works at Zoom. I got to tell you, Gary, this thing is real. Uh, a lot of the executives are discovering that they save a lot of money. If they all do Zoom, no one's going to jump in and do the personal. Um, is there, are we in a situation where this habit of Zoom may not go away and there'll be business travelers uh, that are just saying, you know what? I'm not traveling. I'm Zooming. Well, there's, there's, there, to me, Jim, there's two aspects in terms of answering your question. One is uh, I'm always loath to be a prognosticator or a predictor. I guess my opinion is that uh, this too shall pass. Just like 9-11, everybody said the world is going to change. People aren't going to fly. They were wrong. Uh, and so I do think that there is a need for business travelers, uh, uh, business people to travel. Uh, and I think that that will get back to, quote, normal at some point. I'll bet you it's a long time from now, but that's just my opinion. What we have to plan for is different. We have to assume that we've got we've to manage this risk. And so we have to assume that we will be more dependent on consumers uh, in terms of our demand in the future. That means we need to keep our costs low. We need to keep our fares low. We need to have a route system that supports consumer interest and demand and you see the new cities that we're adding, they're very much oriented towards uh, leisure destinations and consumer desires. And if that were proved to be wrong and business travel comes back stronger, fine. That's just more upside. We'll buy more airplanes. We'll be happy. <laughs> but in the meantime, we have to assume that business travel will be lighter and for a long time. And you remember that in a normal recession, business travel is cut very sharply and it takes five years for it return before it starts expanding again. Five years. That was the case in 2008. It was the case 2001. It was the case in 1991. And you've got to believe that that will be at least the case now. And I've said it may be 10 years before business travel recovers. Ooh. I don't know. But we're going to be prepared to be more uh, dependent upon consumer travel. And we will do well in that environment. Hey, finally, Gary, one of the takeaways from the quarter has been uh, your talks with Boeing on the order book uh, on the MAX. I wonder if you, your thoughts on American adding it to uh, Miami, New York, and I'm not sure, have you, have you named a route or a date at which you might return the MAX to service as well? No, because, no, no, because we don't know when the airplane is uh, going to be ungrounded, and um, it'll, we'll then have to feather it into our cadence in terms of uh, training and uh, we've been as you all know we've been down this road for uh, going on almost two years now so uh, at this point we're not pressed for additional lift and I want us to be as efficient as we can and minimize the cost impact of reintroducing the max so no we haven't picked a date yet because because we don't have a firm ungrounding date uh, it'll take us months uh, after that, so my guess is it will be flying and revenue service in the second quarter of next year.
Woo. <laughs> uh, Gary, um, thanks so much, as always, uh, for helping investors and our viewers understand the quarter. Uh, good to see you. We'll see you next time. Great to be with you all. And thanks, as always, for having us. Uh, Gary Kelly of Southwest. As we said earlier, yesterday the news was big. Uh, that Quibi, not sure why we're looking at a Whirlpool part, chart. We'll talk about Whirlpool as well uh, as the CEOs uh, coming up. And then, of course, Quibi, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman later on in the hour. That's coming up at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Don't go away. Let's get to Rick Santelli this morning. Morning, Rick. Good morning, Carl. Obviously, we had better than expected initial claims. And even though the markets did a very slow burn, Look at the intraday. We established the low yields basically on the number at 8.30, and we moved higher. And then once the equity markets opened at 9.30 Eastern, boy, did everything change. Now, look at a two-day, and this is important. Whether it's 83.5, the high in, uh, yield yesterday in 10s, or 165 in 30s, open the chart up to a five-day. What you'll find is since retail sales Friday, we built upon the high yields every successive session. So watch those two levels carefully. Finally, let's look at the dollar index Going back to April of 2018, we could see that at the end of August, they established what was at that time a 27-month low. We're getting close to revisiting the bottom range finally. Here's two commodities. Wheat going back to December of 14, corn July of 19. Why? Boy, agricultural commodity prices are going up, up, up. Carl Jim David, back to you. Oh, thank you so much, Rick. I'm watching that stuff because it's uh, impacting stocks, I think. And one of the reasons why things have been soggy. But something that's not soggy is Whirlpool. Uh, the shares are rising this morning. The company posted a beat in both earnings and revenues driven by solid industry demand across the globe. Uh, joining us now is Whirlpool Corporation CEO Mark Bitzer. Uh, Mark, thank you for coming on the show. It's really great that you're here. Jim, thanks for having me. Uh, Mark, I feel this is uh, not to denigrate uh, your predecessors. This is a new Whirlpool. I mean, it was flawless execution, as your CFO said. Uh, you're taking share. Uh, you have better machines than you've ever had, and I don't even see, I think, that literally, if it weren't for supply problems, you would have had an even bigger quarter, wouldn't you? Yeah, so, so Jim, to your point, we're, we're very, very proud of what we've achieved in Q3. Um, this has been an outstanding quarter. We beat our previous all-time high by more than 50%, with 75% operating profit improvement, so it's a tremendous quarter. What's more important even we also guided for fourth quarter, which is equally strong. So we feel really good about where we are from business, not just because we start seeing some tailwind, but we, I think we structurally changed our business model. And we are demonstrating in Q2 and Q3 and Q4, we can perform on different levels. Yeah, one of the things I thought was uh, interesting was most companies have suspended guidance and many companies are uh, cutting dividends. That's not the case of you. you. You actually raised the dividend. You're that confident. Yeah, so, so Jim, and obviously, I mean, as everybody experienced, the visibility as you go through with COVID um, initially was almost a week or two weeks only. Um, so, of course, we couldn't get guidance. Then it was a month. Now I think we see a quarter out and we feel very confident about where our business is. And that's why we felt we can reinstate guidance. Even more important, um, you know, you mentioned earlier the earnings. Um, our cash flow has been exceptionally strong. Um, we finished the quarter with 3.5 billion cash. We paid down all COVID-related debt. So um, strong earnings, strong cash position. Yes, that gives us the confidence and the right to increase dividends. Mark, I've been critical of Whirlpool since 1982 because you stayed in Brazil. I'm astounded at the numbers you put up in Brazil. What's going on there? 
No, I mean, uh, first of all, <laughs> Jim, no reason to be overly critical on us, but I'm glad you found your way back. Um, no, I think our Brazilian team does an excellent job in what is still a very challenging market. I mean, we saw initially with demand coming down. Now it's coming back up strongly with a lot of COVID stimulus. But frankly, our Brazilian team and the entire Latin America team is a, what I would call a well-oiled machine. They, can know, they know how to execute. We have a very strongly growing direct-to-consumer business, which is rising like um, incredibly fast. So we're very well positioned to participate in the uptake in the Brazilian demand and the entire Latin America demand. Mark, one last question before I turn it over to my colleague, David. Uh, we have the brands up there, and I know Jen Ayers is a terrific one. Mark, this is your time. You've got to give us the highest end, higher than Garland, higher than Victory. High. We've got to have something higher than the best refrigerators that we all know. We are ready for a brawn. Give us something. When are you going to give us? When are you going to give us a Lamborghini appliance? This is your time. <laughs> First of all, Jim, don't go to Lamborghini to buy a refrigerator. You can buy it from Gen Air and our products. But you know, all joking aside, I think what he hit is a good point, Jim. Is you know, as we work our way through this corona crisis, we start seeing a shift in consumer demand. Initially, it was more of the lower ticket items in the home, and now we start more and more higher ticket items in the home. Hopefully, all the way to the Lamborghini refrigerator. Um, but we, we are encouraged. You know, there is disposable income. Consumers are investing in the home, and that will structurally give us a lot of um, really healthy consumer demand. Yeah, it's been an outcome of COVID, perhaps that was not expected in the early days, uh, Mark. Uh, people are having a hard time getting a hold of refrigerators right now. Uh, and you mentioned, I think, briefly in your opening answer to, to Jim, sort of at least uh, are there problems getting a hold of some parts? Uh, what's going on? Yeah, so, David, um, first of all, there's COVID brings, unfortunately, apart from a human and the health dimension, brings severe supply con- chain constraints. You know, it is. In our factories, where, of course, you have labor shortage, you have social distancing in the factories, where you just have to slow down the assembly lines because you can't make them longer. You have challenges, similar challenges to suppliers who then miss out to deliver components, and we have logistics challenges. So wherever you have a high number of COVID cases, that's where you will face supply constraints. Um, where I feel good about our team work 24-7 every week to kind of get better and better and getting more yield out production. But frankly, right now, we still have a fairly significant order backlog, um, which is, yeah, it's good because it gives you confidence for demand. But of course, we feel bad about letting consumers down and not delivering the refrigerator, which we have been waiting for several weeks. Right. Yeah, it's a high class problem, as they say. What is going on in the factories right now? You mentioned social distancing. I mean, what percentage of productivity are you at as a result of things you've had to do to apply social distancing and make sure you're keeping your workers safe? Yeah. So, so David, first of all, and, and even if you go back all the way to Q2, we never shut down our factories. You know, you remember the talk around March or April, the big industrial company shut down factories. We never shut them down. And by the way, I really appreciate our employees showing up to work every day. Um, that was a big deal with so much uncertainty. But the fundamental issue is the COVID-related constraints in the factory, where you thought before you have 100% capacity, you pretty much have now about 80-85%. Um, and, you know, we typically don't run our factories at 50% capacity, but it typically run day in, day out, 80-85%. So we're pretty much right now at the cap, um, and we're right now having balance between the demand supply, but we're not yet able to fully catch up to what we missed out the first couple of months of a COVID crisis. Mark, your balance sheet's improving rapidly. A lot of this is your work. I, I know that you're very exacting, uh, and I know that the Bosch strategy is always a good one. Go to the highest end. Uh, I, I don't want to mention anybody you could buy. I don't want to go down that, that path. Uh, why don't you buy Sub-Zero? <laughs> 
you, you put me here on thin ice, Jim. Um, first of all, yeah, our balance sheet is a strong one. You know, we luckily, the, you know, coming into this year, of course, nobody could foresee the corona crisis. Um, but we saw the risk of a downturn, and we strengthened our balance sheet the last two years. So we went into the crisis with strong balance sheet. We took on extra cash, but now our cash flow is super strong. We paid down the, the short-term debt, and now we have, end of the year, we will have a 23 that multiple, um, which of course gives us multiple opportunities and confidence for all forms of capital allocation. Mark, one of the things you've done that people don't understand is you've made machines that millennials like. Is what's happened? I mean, this Whirlpool used to be out of touch with the younger people. I now find Whirlpool is the one they buy when they first move into an apartment or a house. What what, what went right? No, I, th- I think Jim, it's it's work over many years. We invested a lot of time. And money, actually, better understanding the digital consumer purchase, investing digital assets, digital capabilities to capture the pre-buy and kind of be more in tune with where millennials are shopping. Um, as, you, as you mentioned right now, KitchenAid, which you see behind us, KitchenAid brand is one of a few old brands who are among top 10 millennium brands across all industries. Um, so, which, you know, gives us a lot of confidence also what we can do with that brand and our other brands going forward. Well, Mark, I got a feeling this is the beginning of a long run. You have changed Whirlpool and, and changed it for the far better. Uh, Mark Bitzer is the CEO of Whirlpool. The stock goes higher. Thank you so much, Mark. Good to see you. Thank you, David and Jim. All right, Jim, what's up on Mad tonight? Well, I am actually going to um, I'm going to go over the Tesla phenomena. Okay. And then I've got Nucor, which I believe is the last great manufacturer in this country, meaning that they have not been defeated by the Chinese. They were not defeated by dumping, and they kept making great things. And I am so proud of them to be on. I can't wait to talk to them. All right, Jim, we'll see you tonight at uh, 6 o'clock. Of course, Mad Money, uh, 6 p.m. Eastern time. More Squawk on the Street continues in a moment. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.